Welcome to the Contending for Christ Apologetics Podcast, where Danny seeks to empower believers to defend their faith. This fight is internal, defending against false teachings that are creeping into the church as well as our hearts and minds. It is also external, with believers needing to know how they can solidify and defend their beliefs. So sit back and relax as we contend for Christ. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is going to be a response to a question that I had fielded on one of my fallacy videos. And basically, there's a question or really a statement that said, It is very easy for us to feel challenged in a debate and vehemently target to defeat the opponent and to make them feel ridiculed and absurd. And that's not what Peter advises. Can you show a real case on how to employ good logic to win the opponent's heart and trust and possibly allow them to become saved? So what I want to do today is I want to talk a little bit about how apologetics is really a spiritual discipline uh, rather than the intellectual or academic pursuit or battle that a lot of times we fall trapped to. Uh, The whole goal of apologetics isn't to win an argument, to win a debate, or to show our academic prowess, but rather the goal of Christian apologetics is to allow people to understand, see the reasonableness of faith of God, to show the necessity of God, uh, the resurrection of Christ, to ultimately lead them to a saving faith with Jesus Christ. So with 1 Peter 3, verse 15, that's one of the main staples and proof text for a part of apologetics. First Peter 3.15, I would really argue, is more about external apologetics and giving a reason for the hope that lies within us. But a lot of times we fail to read the tail end of that verse where we need to have meekness and reverence or meekness and fear in doing so. You see, there's too many times that our pride really takes center stage when, when our faith is challenged. You know, for whatever reason, May it be the intellect, may it be uh, the flesh or arrogance or whatever it, whatever it is, we really seek to show off the knowledge and the academic information that we have when others challenge our beliefs. And, and whether it's within Christian apologetics in the religious realm or whether it's with sports and defending our team or, or whether it's defending an, a position that we held, a lot of times it's not about the argument per se, but it's about our flesh, our desires, our arrogance, our intellect. And while we really seek to do that and everything subconsciously, it's really counterintuitive for what the goal is, like I said, of Christian apologetics, which is really to reveal the God of the Gospels. And we end up many times revealing us as opposed to God. And and while it may be very well meaning to answer the objections of faith that many people have and bring up, if we're only doing it to save face, or really only doing it to keep others from believing that we're just ignorant or uneducated, and it's really not about leading them to Christ, then we've really truly missed the mark. So what we really have to realize is Christian apologetics is sharing the faith and defending the faith, and it's a very, very big spiritual battle. You see, there's been a war with mankind ever since the Garden of Eden when Satan really manipulated Eve and even questioning God's word by saying, did God say? You see, we got to realize that there's more than academic knowledge at stake. Souls are at stake. Every person that's ever lived is going to have to spend an eternity of one of two places. And keeping this in the forefront of our minds should allow us to remember that this is a spiritual battle. 
I like what Dar- David Jeremiah had once said, and he said, people are not the enemy, no matter how cynical they are. People are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And we have to realize that the spiritual blindness is being placed upon the minds of those that don't believe because the devil himself. And God reveals this truth in Second Corinthians. He says that in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. See, one of the verses, like I said, within apologetics is 1 Peter 3.15, where we're told to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Like I said, a lot of times people forget those last few words with meekness and fear. So if we're simply just given reasons without reverence and gentleness, then we've really overlooked the admonition given by God. We must always be focused on showing the reason in a gentle and respectful manner because, as has been said, you may be the only Bible some people read. And being ambassadors of Christ, we would do well to be a good reflection of what Jesus looks like to other people. All that being said, I want to expound upon some more logical fallacies. Uh, the last video that I had on fallacies really looked at the top five. So I want to bring up, I think there's 11, 10 or 11 of them here in this episode that we may not be too familiar with. Some of them we will be. So I want to bring those up and like the last one, I want to give examples from personal experience while also cautioning the Christians out there that are listening from not doing these fallacious arguments as well. So without further ado, let's just jump right in. First would be the ad hominem fallacy. This is really attacking the person or the character of the person rather than the argument. See, one time I posed this question to a group of atheists uh, talking about the rationality of God's existence. And, And I asked this question and I get swarmed. By many people, they attacked me, they attacked my views without even substantiating their claims. And then when I pointed out how many people attacked me, my position very quickly, without even hearing what I had to say, one person says, what's that? What's there to hear? You already said you're a Christian. And that's the fallacy saying that anything that I have to say or my argument is negated on the fact of my character, my conduct, or my personage of being a Christian. So that's a ad hominem attack. The next fallacy is actually the anecdotal fallacy, and it's really used in personal experience to support a claim rather than a logical argument, and it really can tie into an emotional fallacy as well. But this is one where, say for instance, an atheist or a deconverted Christian will claim that God doesn't exist because he didn't answer a specific prayer of theirs. And it places the personal experience of the individual as to the reason that they discredit the existence of God. It's a fallacy because it's not sound logical argument, but it's really just based upon an experience that one believed didn't work out on how they desired. Then you have the appeal to authority fallacy, which really it presumes a premise. Remember, typically our logical arguments are built upon premises and then your conclusion and your premises point to the conclusions. And really this one seeks to presume or presuppose a premise because a certain authority figure or figures believe it to be so. It's kind of common, uh, similar to the bandwagon fallacy. However, it focuses more on who believes something rather than the bandwagon fallacy. You see, we see this in many cases where so-and-so scientist said evolution is true, or Dr. Bottlestopper said Jesus never existed, so it must be true. After all, they're a doctor. And just like these historians and these scientists with doctorates, 
A lot of people just because they have credentials believe what they said to be true. But is that really the case? You see, the Pharisees in the New Testament were highly educated people in theology. They had the quote-unquote doctorate in theology. Yet they had horrible theology. They taught falsehood. They taught lies and errors about Jesus Messiah. So just because they had the credentials and the authority did not mean their arguments were sound. Then you have the appeal to emotion, which this is making a claim based upon emotion rather than, again, sound reasoning or logic. You know, one atheist tries to disprove the existence of a Christian God by arguing that many people in the Bible have committed atrocities and that he misrepresents the, the hyperbole in which God commanded to kill every man, woman, and child of Canaan and other horrific acts. But see, overlooking the hyperbole of just, hey, we're going to destroy uh, the New England Patriots this weekend. You're not literally destroying them. You're just using a hyperbole to exaggerate uh, just just the emotion involved, if you will. And so while God did not argue to commit genocide on the Canaanites, and we see that the case because Canaanites still existed after this uh, command, it was more of a hyperbole, which I think is Paul Copan that goes into a, a greater depth as far as this uh, idea is concerned. It's more of a hyperbole in God wanting to destroy the patriots or destroy the Canaanites because of it's a horrible religion. They were sacrificing kids to the altar of Molech, burning them alive. So the appeal to emotion fallacy is, is really going out of the way to discredit God's existence just because of how one feels about whether something God does or God says or scripture says or, or just whatever. If you're tugging at emotions and it presents a negative emotion inside of you, you are appealing to that emotion to claim the argument is valid or not valid. You see, bandwagon uh, is something, uh, argument that's believed because really everybody's just subscribing to it. It's like the Vikings just, uh, uh, well, by the time you listen to this episode, the Vikings are going to be out of the playoffs anyways. But in the wild card game, the Vikings beat the New Orleans Saints, and nobody thought they would beat the Saints. I didn't even think they'd beat the Saints. I've been a Vikings fan for many years, and I know how many times they ripped my heart out uh, just by playing like doo-doo. But... Uh, now that they beat the Saints, there's a lot more people jumping on the Viking bandwagon. And a lot of times it's just because other people are doing it, so they're going to jump on it as well. And, and this fallacy is something I've seen in the Christian circles for a while, and it's really alarming when dealing with the subject of evolution, which I do not subscribe to macroevolution. Unfortunately, more and more theists are beginning to subscribe to it, though, as far as origins of life and the Big Bang. And it's really alarming to me because I strictly hold to a literal six-day creation with no pre-Adamic species. Uh, Neanderthal man is just really a normal Merck person. I don't believe in any sort of theistic evolution ideas. But the reason why many people within Christendom are beginning to turn to evolution as an answer is because more ministries are promoting the view, such as I believe it's uh, reasons to believe, standard reasons, and others. Just because people are abandoning a particular doctrine doesn't mean that doctrine is true. That is the bandwagon fallacy. Begging the question, and this one is very prevalent. It's presenting a circular argument, really beating around the bush with never even answering the question. And this is one where... I see a lot of times with naturalists trying to explain the origins of the universe. You see, naturalists realize there is a problem because we can only trace historical evidence back to the point when you're dealing with cosmology, back to the point of singularity, of which they clearly claim the entirety of the universe was contained in a single point so 
dense to the size of our freckle. So everything in our universe, th imagine it, is so densely compact into a point called singularity that's about the size of the freckle on your skin. But when you ask them what caused the bang, they have no idea and cannot explain that part. So when the question's asked to the atheist how the universe began, they'll bring up the Big Bang Theory, but they'll never be able to get past the point of singularity and what made it to go bang. And therefore, they never really answer the question. They keep begging the question because the question was, how did the universe begin? But see, this is a... There's another fallacy that's seen in the dating methodology of uh, fossil records because geologists and naturalists will argue that the strata of which the fossil is found determines how the fossil is. While at the same time, and that's based upon the supposed geologic column, while at the same time they'll argue that the age of the strata is dependent upon the fossils that are found within it. And that's still begging the question and it's also circular reasoning, which is a fallacy as well. But see, the begging the question is also a caution for Christians because many times we'll say that we know the Bible is true because God tells it's true and God wrote the Bible. So that's also a form of circular reasoning without even explaining or answering the question. So we're begging the question. While the statement might be true that God wrote it, it's in the Bible and it's true, the argument itself is faulty because of the premises. What about burden of proof? Burden of proof. I love this one. Burden of proof fallacy is really anybody making a claim has the burden of proof to substantiate the claim. Many atheist, skeptics, cynics, critics will purport that they don't have to prove that God doesn't exist, that the burden of proof is always on the theist for claiming he does exist. You see, however, comma, you'll hear a lot of times where atheists will go out of their way and say God doesn't exist once they make that truth claim. Once they make that statement, they have the burden of proof to prove their statement true. Otherwise, it's the burden of proof fallacy. So anybody making a type of claim has the burden of proof to substantiate it. So where they say God doesn't exist or where they say leprechauns aren't real, making a truth claim carries with it the necessity of the burden of proof. So don't let anyone push you around with the burden of proof to say God doesn't exist, but I don't have the burden to prove it. False. That's a burden of proof fallacy. Making any claim carries with it the requirement to substantiate that claim. About the fallacy of equivocation. This is a big one too. It's really using misleading terms or using a term in an argument more than one way for deception. You see, the word evolution is a big part of atheist toolkit, naturalist toolkit, and one of which they claim discredits God of the Bible. However, it's important to realize that there is scientific evidence of evolution. What? Really? Yeah, hear me out. While macroevolution is major changes of kinds, for instance, bird to dog, ape to lizard, or a kind to another kind, there's no scientific evidence for that macroevolution. However, there is scientific evolution for what's called microevolution, and this really is just variations within kinds, such as all dogs, whether it's a German Shepherd, a Poodle, whatever the case is, are still dogs. There's variations. And even Darwin's finches are evidence of variations because you have different types of finches in different locations. So now the beaks might be structured a little bit different. However, comma, they are still a finch. The false dilemma fallacy, this is a big one. This is really also called the either or fallacy and it's presenting only two choices for, for an answer when really there could be more options and it's quite common for those within Christianity. And, and typically a question will be posed, uh, 
which is around the time of when Epicurus uh, was philosopher in Greek, and I think it was before the turn of the millennia uh, before Christ. But Epicurus is on record as saying, "Is God willing to stop evil but unable? Then he's omnip- then he's not omnipotent. If God is able but not willing." then God is malevolent. So here you have Epicurus, one of the Greek philosophers that says, based upon the evilness in the world, if God is able to do it, but not willing, then he's not a loving God. Or if God is willing, but he's not able to do it, then he's not all powerful. And so according to Epicurus, it's either one of those or God doesn't exist. And well, that's a logical fallacy called the false dilemma either or because there are more reasons why God would allow the existence of evil. And it's, it's a big term called theodicy. I'd recommend you looking into that. Uh, William Lane Craig, you got Frank Turk. A lot of philosophers really answer uh, the reasons on why evil exists or God's allowance of it. But many atheists don't even really care or simply try to hear the reasons for them. And they're not really interested in what God has to say. The no true Scotsman fallacy. This is one, uh, it's an interesting one, but if this is where you appeal uh, to purity. For instance, saying, oh, no real person would, blah, 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 blah. It creates a hypothetical ideal person which the argument falls upon. And so this fallacy is seen quite often mixed with the appeal to emotion. For instance, many atheists will have a hard time with the concept of hell or the concept of children getting cancer and dying. and and because of that, they're going to claim that a real God would not allow these children to die. Or a real God wouldn't send people or allow people to go to hell. And here the atheists claim that if such a God exists, then the God of the Bible doesn't fit their idea because to them, a pure ideal God would not allow these things to happen. And you can see this by memes that, you know, cynics post, if you need the threat of eternal torment to be a good person, then you're not a good person. <laughs> and it's funny because if you talk to a Christian, Christians will say none of us are good, not even the Christians. There's only one good but God. And so the no true Scotsman fallacy really talks about uh, building up a pure uh, hypothetical person and then saying, oh, God can't exist because he doesn't fit my pure ideal person. Yeah, that's a fallacy. The final fallacy we're going to be talking about is called special pleading. And special pleading is ignoring certain aspects which are problematic to a position that one holds. Uh, for instance, atheists claim there's no contemporary writings that reveal the historicity of Jesus. But when anybody presents them with the writings of Josephus, or they argue that Josephus' writings were forgeries by Eusebius, and that there are pages of Tacitus when his information is brought up, oh, they're missing documents. Yet there's never any substantiation of the claims that the atheist makes. When evidence is presented, they simply just ignore it because it goes against their argument. However, this is one where we as theists need to also be careful with, and something that atheists like to claim and point out, because a lot of times Christians will use what's called a God of the gaps argument. And this is where if there's something that a Christian can't claim, they automatically posit God in there. Well, who did this? Well, you know, if we don't know, it had to have been God. And that also is a logical fallacy. So those are the 11 logical fallacies that we should try to avoid or at least be able to discern when others have a fallacious argument. Again, in apologetics with Christian apologetics, the goal isn't to win a debate, but the goal is to reveal the inconsistency of the opponent's view so that they would doubt their position, leading them to the openness of considering the God of the Bible and Jesus of Nazareth.
So I pray this episode has equipped you to be able to defend your faith with more resolve and spiritual keenness. And as always, I thanks for checking in, and God bless. Thanks for listening. We pray this ministry glorifies God and edifies you, the listener. For more great content, including videos, blogs, newsletters, and a free ebook, check out our website at c4capologetics.weebly.com. You can also email us at c4capologetics at gmail.com with questions or ideas for future episodes. We truly appreciate you. Please like, share, and comment on this episode, and don't forget to subscribe for future episode notifications. Thanks for checking in, and remember to be bold and keep contending for Christ.